everyone. My name is Nick Wignall, and you're listening to the Minds and Mics podcast. On this show, I talk with experts in the fields of psychology, behavioral science, and human potential, and try to see the world through their eyes. How do they think differently about topics as diverse as addiction and mindfulness to parenting and motivation? What do they know that most of us don't? And what can we learn from them to improve our own lives in practical, meaningful ways? Alexis McLeod is a professor of philosophy and Asian American studies at the University of Connecticut, who specializes in, among other things, ancient Chinese philosophy and mental illness. In today's conversation, Alexis and I discuss what insights Eastern philosophical traditions might have for more modern approaches to mental health and well-being. Alexis McLeod, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Let's start off with your background. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in philosophy and especially ancient Chinese philosophy? Hmm. So I had kind of a circuitous route to, uh, to Chinese philosophy and also to thinking about mental health in Chinese philosophy. So I kind of, uh, I started out in purely Western philosophy as an undergrad at the University of Maryland. And there, I think it's still the case, they don't really have Chinese philosophy within philosophy, the philosophy department. Um, but I started taking Chinese language because um, I was really interested and still really interested in, in languages and fell in love with the language um, and kind of discovered on my own the, um, the philosophical tradition in China. So I kind of pasted together the two, these two things I was interested in, China, uh, Chinese language and philosophy, and just kind of went from the discovered early Confucianism, then Zhuangzi and a lot of the early, other earlier te- texts, and just kind of ran with it from there. Um, went into grad school, and there was still, at the time, so I started grad school in 2003, and at the time there were only you know like a handful of places where you could actually go and do work on Chinese philosophy. Um, and so I went to the University of Oklahoma, which was which was one. Um, and most of the most of what I did there, of course, was in, was still in Western philosophy, other than in my classes with one person that I was working with Chinese philosophy in. Um, and so I got a kind of big, you know, a lot of background in contemporary analytic philosophy. Continued my Chinese philosophy with my own um, advisor. Then moved to the University of Connecticut for my PhD. Same thing, right? I worked with one person there that that was um, that did uh, Chinese philosophy. And you're really kind of like in, in this field, especially at the time, or kind of on your own. Um, and so I, I, I got used to just kind of developing my own projects. And so I began with uh, Chinese philosophy and early Confucianism. And then because I just kind of got interested in various things through reading about them, um, I started moving in some different directions, working on Mesoamerican philosophy, um, on um, Islamic Sufi philosophy, uh, Indian philosophy, and just kind of got went all over the place. And um, one thing that interested me that, and actually brought me to the, the, the current material that I'm working on with, uh, with mental health uh, and mental illness in particular in, um, in ancient uh, Chinese philosophy was the, um, the medical text. So I read, this must have been back in, I think it was 2011 or something like this. And I read this book by uh, Joe, Joe Guidian um, on Qin and Han philosophy. And he made this claim that I thought was absurd at the time, but I, I agree now. And he said something like, um, you can't fully understand early Chinese philosophy without understanding early Chinese astronomy and medicine, because they're, they're so tied, uh, tied together. And I actually wrote a, I wrote a review of that book. Um, and I said, I, you know, I, I criticized the claim saying, oh, we can separate philosophy and all of this. And, but the, then I kind of kept that in the back of my mind. And I started reading more about um, early Chinese astronomy and early Chinese medicine. And after a couple of years, I, I came to say, you know what? I, I think he's actually right. Um, there's because when I was reading these these astro- this, these astronomical and these medical texts, there was a whole lot of, of what I would have called and what anybody would call philosophy going on there. But philosophers had neglected it because it was oh, this is medicine, or this is this is astronomy, or this is something something different. 
Um, and so when I started looking at the, in particular, the Han text, the Huangdi Neijing, which is the earliest of the, uh, of the Chinese medical text, it really is a kind of a medical manual in the large sense of, in the broad sense of medical in which they're talking about the medicine, in which they're talking about the um, looking for the proper operation of the human organism across the board, right? So it includes things like morality and living a good life and thriving, et cetera. It's not just about, you know, treating particular illnesses. Um, or, I mean, they would include this in the, in the notion of being as illnesses, moral illnesses. Um, so I found that the medicine and philosophy really went hand in hand um, in the ancient period. And that's what kind of kicked off this, uh, this current project that I have, um, which deals with looking at, um, in particular, mental health, um, the issue of mental health um, and mental illness in early Chinese texts. Yeah, so we're I want I definitely want to dive into a lot of that in, in your kind of upcoming work on that. But before we get there, let's I want to do like a little bit of stage setting um, philosophically, just to kind mm. of orient ourselves. So, what are some of the important ways in which traditional Eastern and Western approaches to philosophy differ? Um, so, in other words, imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner party with you know Confucius and about you and and then on the other side of the table there's Aristotle and Kant um, <laughs> and you're kind of hanging out and they're all discussing philosophy what would be what do you imagine would be some of the more interesting points of disagreement between like across the aisle there um, if any I think there's there's the big point of disagreement would be their starting point so I think they they do a lot more um, there are a lot more similarities than I think sometimes uh, they're they're given credit for having. Um, the, one of the kind of things that you'll hear a lot is this idea that the early Chinese philosophers are more concerned with, um, with, with practical, with practice, right? They're more concerned with um, politics. They're more concerned with ethics. They're more concerned with things that aren't as theoretical, whereas the ancient Greeks are concerned with metaphysics and epistemology and things like this. Um, there's something to that, right? Of course, the early Chinese philosophers got into metaphysics and epistemology as well. It was, the, when, when they did, it was generally in service of coming up with an answer to the question of how do we how do we live better, right? Or how do we have a kind of more thriving society or a harmonious society, et cetera. But I, I usually point out when when um, when I talk about this that even even the ancient Greeks, um, that was the case for them as well. Right. So Plato, for example, he was talking about things like knowledge and the forms and his kind of robust metaphysics. But all of that ultimately was in the service of um, liberation of the soul, right? Um, from the liberation of the soul from the body and the realm of the forms and all of this. And so it had a kind of soteriological um, purpose at the end as well that I think sometimes philosophers forget or, or, or ignore. Um, but they're definitely, I mean, in, ter in terms of the things that they would tend to focus more on, I think you see more focus on, on the practical as such, right? Uh, with politics, ethics, um, living in that sense in the Chinese philosophy and more of a focus on things like metaphysics or the abstract in, in, in ancient Greek philosophy as a kind of shorthand for the differences. Sure. And that's what you mean by kind of they ha having different starting points. In terms yeah. Of what they're oriented toward. Exactly. Right. So they both end up getting there. Right. So the idea is so the, the early Chinese uh, philosophers, they're doing the metaphysics and epistemology as well. But it's just you know, the, the, re the reasons behind why they're doing it often t tend to differ. Right. So when you'll see these, especially when you get to the Han Dynasty and you get these really elaborate metaphysics and correlative cosmology and all of this. And a lot of it is in the service of. Um, trying to figure out um, how best to rule or how best to act or how to thrive, something like this. They're all tied into this kind of overarching project that has to do with, um, the, the, it's really a project of living, right? Um, uh, pra practical in that in that sense. Gotcha. Reminds me of um, when I was an undergrad, I was an English major in undergrad, and one of my favorite professors uh, made the claim that all good, lit all great literature tries to answer two questions, which are, 
what is the nature of reality and how should a life be lived? Um, <laughs> which, which sort of gets at this, um, this tension, right? It's kind of polarity in, it sounds like what, in all philosophy, really. Um, but, it, but it sounds like your, your interpretation is that that's one way to look at kind of East and West as they're starting from kind of different sides of that, um, that polarity, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a, I mean, I think that's something that, like, as I mentioned, is, is kind of, you can find those, both of those, uh, those strands in both. It's just which one is, which one is dominant, right? In each, in each tradition. Sure. And it seems kind yeah. of like you've got one side being the dominant one on each. So I, I want to, let's transition kind of into talking a little bit more about, about mental health specifically. And I'm going to, um, bear with me, but I'm, I'm going to kind of block quote you uh, <laughs> in real time here from a, this recent essay you did in Aeon, which I just, I really loved, <laughs> but, but I think this will help kind of set the stage. And in that essay, you said, mental illness is often thought to be a matter of individual disorder. Modern psychiatry looks to features of individual experience, behavior, and thoughts to diagnose mental illness and focuses on individual remedies to treat it. If you're depressed, this is understood as your response to circumstances based on features of your genetics, disordered patterns of thinking, of personal problems and emotional states. Western treatment of mental illness follows these same individualistic lines. The individual is provided with medicine and therapy, which are certainly helpful, but such an emphasis on the individual can lead us to neglect communal approaches to treatment. Often overlooked are the ways in which social norms, cultural beliefs, and communal attitudes contribute to mental illness. Ancient Chinese scholars understood this well. So I wanted to throw that up because I think that sort of sets the stage for what we want to get into. But I want to have you start with that last line, the idea that ancient Chinese scholars understood this well. So what exactly did they understand um, even back then that we could really benefit from um, from kind of picking their brains a little bit more about today. So I think the I think really what it goes back to is their understanding of what the person is. Right. So in a lot of Western philosophy, right, when there's this, when there's a discussion of the person, you tend to get a you tend to get a discussion of the individual, right, of the autonomous individual, right. You see um, people like uh, Immanuel Kant, for example, right, talks about autonomy as being necessary for moral activity, things like this, right. It's it's separate it's separability and individual individuality. Whereas in, for the Confucians in particular, in the early Chinese in, in general, they, they had a very different view of what the person was. Um, I've written a bit about this. Some of the stuff that I did early on in my career um, had to do with this. This idea that the person itself is a communal entity, right? It's not uh, a completely uh, separable and autonomous thing. So one, one way of kind of making sense of that is that if we think about all of the features that go to make up, go into making a, up what we are, right? We can think about like our genetic, physical, and mental features, but then we can also think about the kind of things that we get from our community, like our, our language and our accent and our attitudes, et cetera. The, the early Confucians talk about this as all, all being belonging to the individual, right? So I have individual attitudes, preferences, um, mental and physical traits, but I get all of that. All of that also belongs to my community, right? It's not just mine, right? So um, my physical features are also my grandparents and my great grandparents, right? And my the way that I speak is also that of my region, right? And so the idea is that all of these things that go to make me up are also features of the community. And so we can't make sense of, according to the uh, ancient Confucians and ancient Chinese more generally, we can't make sense of an individual without the community, right? And in some sense the individual is just a kind of combination of all these communal features in one place. Right? And so there's necessarily going to be an effect that the community has on, on the person in that way, right? Because I'm constructed out of these, these, uh, these parts of the community or these parts of the, the, um, uh, the wider community, I'm going to also take on other features of the community. And this is, goes for, um, 
mental health. It goes for it goes for any kind of anything that we might talk about that belongs to the individual person. So it's really, I think, the reason that they they recognize this about uh, mental illness in particular was because they recognize the communal nature of the of the person, right? That that there is no um, truly autonomous, separable person in that sense. This this is kind of a, a broad uh, question, and, and I'm sure hard to answer. But what is it? Do you think about Chinese culture um, or history, maybe that predisposed them to think about the human person like that? Any like speculative uh, or maybe not so speculative thoughts on that? That's a that's a really good question, and I'm not and I'm not exactly sure. I mean, th- because it's, there's no real kind of. Uh, difference in terms of how people lived right in early China than you had in like ancient Greece, things like this. But at the same time, I think that this, this kind of idea wasn't so foreign from, from the West either, right. In ancient Greece, right. Um, the idea of, um, the family being important, right. In, in terms of what one is and one's wider community being important and what one's, and one's getting one's feature in some sense, features in some sense from that community. I think a lot of this is more modern, is more recent in Western history, right? A lot of the kind of focus on the individual um, as autonomous, you know, maybe from the modern period, things like this, where we go back to things, people like Kant. Um, so I think it's there in both the East and West. But for some reason, right, this, this kind of, this remains a strong element of, uh, of Chinese thought, whereas things diverge a bit um, in the West. And I'm not sure why that is. I mean, maybe it has to do with um, particular um, new ideologies through religion, um, through uh, kind of modern science, things like this. Although there's to some extent you could have modern science seems that would commit you to this idea that the of communal personhood as well. Um, but it's, it's, it's interesting. It's unclear. I'm not sure I could give a kind of definitive answer as to why they had more of a conception of the person as communal, but they definitely did um, than, than what we see in much of Western thought, if not all of Western thought, right? They're, the ancients in the West also had, had something, something of this concept as well. Yeah, it's interesting that maybe a better way to frame that question is like, why why did we uh, kind of lose that balance maybe and kind of over-index on the the more narrowly personal? Um, Absolutely. I mean, it's in a sense, we're kind of the outlier here, right? It's like most of the cultures through uh, human history had something much closer to this kind of ancient Chinese conception. And the question is like, why did, how did we get here, right? From <laughs> given that, you know, the, if you look back into in time, right, so many cultures and so many places had this kind of moral communal conception of, of what the person is. Yeah, it's interesting. And it may, maybe, maybe one historical analysis of that is that we, d- we didn't really lose that until we got to kind of the early modern period, like the mm-hmm. Renaissance. And I think that's um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. Uh, it makes me think that one of these little, um, a little like metaphor I like to use in therapy with my own clients um, is a, a lot of people get frustrated with themselves because they think like, okay, you know, I've, I've, I've made this commitment to, I'm going to start, you know, um, working out regularly, or I'm going to try, I'm going to really try and start being more patient with my kids and, and my wife or my spouse or whatever it is. And, and then they'll, they'll come into therapy and I'm just so disappointed with myself. You know, I, I just screwed it up again. I didn't do, I, I don't know why I can't, I, I knew I wanted to do this. I don't know why I can't. And one of the ways I kind of help people make sense of that is to kind of dispel this idea. People have this idea that that your brain is like a thing, that it's like the captain. And like once your brain has instructions, like your body should just follow them out somehow. <laughs> and what I tell people is anatomically, if, if you look at the brain, the brain is much more, it's a committee. It is mm. not a dictatorship. It's the, It's this kind of duct tape together collection of little modules and, and organelles that all actually 
it's a kind of amazing that they function together so well. But but you're going to have parts of you that pull in one direction and parts mm. of you that kind of pull in another. And so even I feel like that's sort of a, a, a microcosm of this idea of the importance of community. Even something as internal as your own mind is really a community with, with sort of impulses and desires that go in ve- very different directions a lot of the time. Um, Absolutely. And and follows what's going on outside of it, right? That, that, I mean, one of the one of the really cool things, one of the things actually that first drew me to Confucianism was this uh, passage in I, I don't remember if I mentioned it in the Eon article, but this passage in the Analects where it says, if you want to if you want to learn about somebody's character, look to their community, right? Because what what happens is we you know we think that we can kind of determine what we're going to do, determine our behaviors on our own, but what happens is that we get in certain communities with certain of certain kinds that have certain representative features, and we just we just become like that, right? It just happens. Right. Um, through, you know, maybe you know, it's, it's, it's almost like magic. Right. Um, we just we just have this tendency to uh, mirror the things that we see around us. Yeah, I think it's it's fascinating that we we seem to consistently underrate how much of an impact. And actually, let me I, I have this in my notes. I, I just I love this passage. So I want to I want to actually quote it because you, you do talk about it in the article. Confucius taught that. If you want to become virtuous, you must must be careful whom you are around. He advised that we should take as friends only those who are at least as morally good as we are. Being part of a harmonious and virtuous community is necessary for the development of healthy behaviors, attitudes, and emotions. If we're in bad, vicious, or unhealthy communities, our beliefs, emotions, expectations, and attitudes, among other things, will be disordered in critical ways. Now, th- this is one of those ideas that is like, I, I can't tell if it's both obvious and profound at the same time. Like this should be just starkly obvious to us that the people we, we spend time around, that the, the people we, we kind of come from have a profound mm. impact on us. So um, I guess my question for you is what, like, what's the disconnect there? Like, why do we, yeah. what sets us up to, to neglect that or to ignore that? Do you think? I think it's partly because we have this kind of this strong sense of individual autonomous agency, right? So when we think that I, I can, I, I'm in control individually and, I, and, and, and I'm an autonomous agent. And so I make these decisions. Then we think that we can face any of these situations and remain unmoved in these situations, right? This is why we see these kind of things like, I'm going to go into this institution and I'm going to change it, right? Because of my virtue or because of my vice or whatever, right? Um, but what happens is, is ends up, no, you just, you become like they are, right? Um, because it turns out that agency doesn't work the way that we think it, it does. It's not that, you know, I have this kind of individual autonomous agency and I'm making decisions from the top and then I'm, I'm kind of um, following through on those. But ra- but we when we have that, con- that view, it, it leads us to neglect, I think, the ways in which these subtle influences are going on. And when we neglect the ways the influences are going on, it makes it even easier for these things to influence us, right? It's like the, you know, the kind of the old uh, discussion of, of, uh, of influence, right? Uh, I think uh, the, the philosopher Han Feidza talks about this, is that the easiest people to influence are the people who don't think that they can be influenced, right? <laughs> because they're right. never going to guess that they're being influenced by the situation or by the people around them, right? Um, and so I think that part of, part of what's going on and part of the reason for that in our cases is that we have such a strong sense of our, our complete control over our mental states, our complete control in terms of in terms of agency, in terms of autonomous agency. Well, it seems like one of the traps there is that um, it does work to an extent. Like autonomy, to some extent, obviously is a real thing. Like we, mm, we right. can make decisions, and we can, we, you know, like in, from my tradition in mental health of cognitive behavioral therapy, you there is this phenomena where you can you can consciously 
decide to change, you know, a thought pattern or how you think, and it will have right. some effect on your mood and yet how you feel. But it seems like that's almost a, the fact that we can do that and that it is relatively powerful almost leads us to kind of overgeneralize that capability right. um, and forget that it is, it is powerful, but limited and right. often constrained by things in our environment, especially um, the people in our environment. Definitely. So let me ask you, I, and I think I, I want to get your take on over the, I would say over the last, I think it's maybe 10, 15 years, there's been a sort of a resurgence of interest in um, stoicism and stoic philosophy. There's kind mm. of this like pop stoicism sort of floating around, especially the the kind of self-improvement internet, social media world. Um, right. And it, it strikes me that one, I, I don't know, maybe this isn't fair to the, the sort of actual stoics, but you can sort of see that the the seeds of that kind of radical autonomy in in stoicism certainly in the way it's interpreted these days how do you, do you see that connection do you, do you think that's partly um a, a kind of a setup or is that is that a misinterpretation of of stoicism rightly understood how do you how do you think about that no i think that's right i mean i think that that's definitely there in stoicism and it's the same in uh, in buddhism um in fact the, there's there's been a lot of interesting work about the kind of similarities between stoicism and buddhism and whether there was a kind of influence of one on the other um and interestingly this this is there in there are aspects of this in early Chinese thought as well. There's a kind of re, there's a kind of rejection or reaction to early Confucian views of the person that come out in some Taoist material, such as the uh, the Zhuangzi, which is a lot closer to um, the things that you see in Stoicism um, than in some of the other early texts. That's one of the things that I uh, write about in in the book, right? This kind of like this in, in some sense individualist uh, response to this kind of o what they think is an over-focus on community and Confucianism that you see come up in the, uh, in, in the Zhuangzi, which is part of the reason, too, they, they, um, they advocate um, abandoning society, right, as a way to, to avoid the ills of society, right, and her uh, hermeticism, things like this. So I think that's very much there in Stoicism. And you also see a little bit of that come out in, in the Chinese tradition, too, as, as a kind of reaction against the mainstream. Right. So you, in, in this essay you wrote, um, you have this line, might communities and their features be more central to causing mental illness than we think? I want to I talk a little bit about, about that idea there. And, mm. and let's start with the word cause. Uh, mm. and, and as a philosopher, you're, you're uniquely positioned to talk about this, the <laughs> idea of causality. Um, so to what extent does, does our community cause changes in our mental health? Like how should we think about causality. I think a lot of us have a kind of um, work a day kind of simplistic idea of causality. You know, you kind of push this and it has an effect, but it strikes me that causality is a little more complicated than that. So how do you think about the relationship between community and, and mental health? And, and what does it mean really to say that communities can cause mental illness? So I think part of what's going on there is I'm using it in the sense of, in the kind of uh, folk sense, where, where the, I'm thinking of something like their view that a society can be disordered in certain ways, right? And so there are particular ways that the Confucians said that society functions harmoniously. And for them, right, society functions harmoniously when you've got the kind of leader in the right position and all the kind of people that are beneath and things are, you know, uh, people are, are performing their roles properly in, in accordance with ritual, et cetera. And that can be disrupted, right? So if if someone doesn't pr perform their role properly, whether it's the whether it's the ruler, most importantly, or other people in society, um, things can get thrown off, and so you can have disharmony. Um, and so they use this this term duen, which is uh, which is disorder. Um, and so that when the society is disordered, the individual will be likewise disordered, right? So there's a kind of there's a connection between that social disorder because of the patterns that are created 
by the disorder in society, we, we retain those patterns in ourselves as made up by the, by the community in this sense. And so if there's, if, for example, I'm trying to think of an example of this, if there's um, kind of bad rulership, um, irresponsible rulership, and it leads to um, people not performing their roles properly um, in you know, the ministers not performing their roles properly. What will happen with the individuals is that the individuals will internalize this, will become part of the individuals to operate in that same way, or to have that same conception of, of rulership or same conception of responsibility. And it's going to be something that's almost going to be, uh, if we are really part of that community, it's going to be really difficult to, 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 to fix this because it's become part of what we are to be dysfunctional in, in that, in that way. So that's, that's what, uh, so that works for pretty much every aspect of the person. And so if the society is disordered, part of what the Confucians held is that if the society is disordered, you'll start finding disorder pop up in other places too. Um, in, including you know moral disorder, and then moral disorder leads to things like emotional disorder, and then that ultimately leads to madness, right? In ways in which the, the, our behaviors, the ways that we're operating, the ways our minds operate, don't allow us to kind of um, operate properly within the world in a way that will lead to thriving. Yeah, so this is this is really fascinating. As I've been I've been a practicing therapist and psychologist for about five years now. And one of the most profound changes I think I've had in terms of my understanding of, of mental health and, and what really influences it is exactly what you're talking about, which is that the sort of like how, how societal and cultural structures really affect individual suffering and health in, mm. in a very like profound way. And this, I think this is incredibly important, but I'm also very intimidated by this because, <laughs> because what, what it sort of implies is that no matter how good a therapist you are, or no matter how, you know, good, uh, you know, a set of drugs you get from your psychiatrist, that is only going at best is only going to help with a certain percentage, a fraction of what's going on. And there could be this very, a big part of the variance could be literally the, the societal structures that you are operating within. So what is this? I mean, the question I have from, for myself, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it is what does it mean for the field of mental health that we need to really start thinking more carefully about sort of how, how does the structure of society um, affect the individual mental health. I mean, that that's, God, it's daunting. <laughs> it is. It is. And, and one of the, one of the most interesting things, actually, the, when I first read this in the Huangdi Neijing, it, it kind of like blew my mind. Cause I, what I was, what I, they, they were talking about all these ways that you can treat these variety of illnesses, right? Both mental and physical illnesses. And then there are parts in, in the text in which they come up to places and they say, if things are disordered to this point, there's nothing you can do. The, the physician can't treat it. Right. Um, and, and, and they're linked a lot of times to, especially when you think about them in terms of the philosophical text to, um, um, the society, right? So you'll see in the Analects and some of the other philosophical texts, these claims like you can be you can be perfect at your self-cultivation, you can do everything right, follow the rituals correctly, but if you're stuck in the wrong kind of community, you're just kind of like, you're. there's nothing you can do, right? You're just going to have a bad end, which is, it's horrifying to me right? <laughs> if you think about it, right? So, but, but those are the kinds of things that one, I mean, I think it's both horrifying and it's also in some sense, empowering, right? Because you can, we, we, we tend to, I think, sometimes think that the problems, whatever problems I have, whether it's, you know, kind of problems of mental illness or problems of you know, any kind of problem, right? That lack of thriving, that it's something, and I think you see this in Stoicism, you see it in Buddhism, you see it in some other areas, that it's a matter of my operation um, on myself, on my mind, right? But if we have this kind of Confucian view that says, well, I can do as well as, I can do perfectly at all of that stuff, but if I got a bad ruler, if I'm in a bad society, then, I'm, then it's doomed. 
that's going to kind of push us toward being, in some sense, more activist, right? And I think that's why, in a sense, the, the Confucians were such an activist tradition in that if they didn't get this right, if, the, if they didn't kind of fix society to some extent, then all their, all their work in self-cultivation was ultimately going to be for naught, right? And one of the really cool and interesting things, I mean, it's kind of indicative of the human condition that you see in Confucianism in uh, Book 18 of the Analects. Um, the, the Taoists are challenging the Confucians in, on just this issue, and they say, look, um, if it's it, you admit sometimes that it's impossible to fix society, right? Maybe society is so broken that you just, I mean, you can't make sure there's a good ruler or that, you know, that the society is not, you know, just falling apart. So what's the point, right? If you're not going to be able to fix it. And the Confucian answer is that, well, look, I'm, you know, we're not dumb. I know, we know that the society is, is in this situation and that maybe we, we can't fix it, right? But part of being human is at least trying to do it, right? If I gave up on that, it would be like giving up on my humanity, right? It would be like throwing in the towel, right? Um, so the idea being that, you know, even I've done all I can for self-cultivation and I may still be stuck in a situation in which I'm going to, I'm not going to thrive or I'm going to have certain illnesses because of the disorder of the society. But then what the, the next thing I have to do is try as much as I can to, to help fix society, right? Even if it's a doomed project, right? So it's a kind of, I mean, it's, it's, it's tragic in, in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. It, well, but I, I like that counterpoint that it, it, in some ways it is empowering too, because there's a lot of, I think a lot of people I, I work with who are, who are suffering emotionally, there's the way I think of it is they they often have a double layer of suffering. There's something they're suffering with initially. It's it's maybe they're they're really anxious, so they've got a lot a lot of anxiety. They're having panic attacks or something. But mm-hmm. there's this there's this subtle layer on top of it, which is I shouldn't be feeling this way, mm-hmm. and if I am, it's my responsibility, and I, I keep trying, and I'm not feeling any better. So therefore, there's something wrong with me. Right. And that like second layer of of painful emotion and guilt is often like multiplicative of suffering. It's not just like you're adding a little bit more. It's it's like you're ballooning out the amount of suffering you're experiencing. So so to your point, this helping people kind of realize you could be doing everything right, but if if you are in um if you, if you are in a society that is um I don't know, prejudiced against your religion for instance or or on a smaller scale, if you're in a job or a career that's just mm. really a bad fit for you, for your temperament and your, your kind of values. Um, or even if you're, even if you're in a marriage that is really unhappy, that it, that isn't a good fit, Hmm. you could be doing everything right. You could be reading all the self-help books and reading all the best philosophy and all the, doing all the right, seeing all the best therapists. Um, but maybe, maybe it's the environment. Right. And, and I think that one of the great things I think the Confucians say about that, the empowering bit of that is that one of the things they suggest is that if you weren't having that response, if that, if it didn't make you, make you feel bad in some sense, then it would be, it would be less than fully human. Right. So in some, in a sense, it's good that you have these responses, right. It's, it's, it, I mean, it's not, I mean, it's not something we ultimately want, right. But to have, but to have certain kinds of suffering show that we're, we're functioning correctly. Right. Right. And it's, it's sort of a, it's a message from, you know, in a lot of ways to anthropomorphize it a little bit. It's a kind of a message from your brain that like, Hey, this is, this is not a good fit, you know, like whatever it is, like on a big society level, on a, on a job level, on a relationship level, whatever it is. Um, And it's a, it's, yes, it's painful, but the message contained in it is, is important and in some ways empowering. It's Mm -hmm. that you, I mean, it's got to be a third to a half of my of the clients I see who struggle with um, chronic depression. My, I uh, it's it's very obvious to me that a huge part of that is there there is a fundamental mismatch in one of their major roles in their life. 
mm-hmm. whether it's their again a primary romantic relationship, whether a career career is a huge one. You see people who, because of you know various kind of family traditions or cultures or cultural sort of aspirations, they you know they become a doctor because everyone's supposed to become a doctor. They become a lawyer because that's what that's what people do, um, and they're just profoundly unhappy being it. But there's this conflict between sort of what I should be doing and what I actually want to be doing. And it's, it's, as you kind of point out, it's, it's, it's really important to be able to see, you, you know, your suffering is yes, it's painful, but in a way it's, it's a message, right? Mm-hmm. It's trying to indicate something about this mismatch between, um, you know, our, our kind of individual life and the, the broader context in which we're living. Um, and that, but I think that's just a, it's such a hard thing to, I mean, I've noticed it myself. It's just a hard thing to think about. We're not coming from a, a very kind of, I would say a classical Western kind of education. It's not something we're trained to think about very well. Mm. And it seems like that's a major handicap, certainly in my field in, in mental health. Yeah, this is, uh, this is one of the things that actually, this is one of the things that fascinated me so much about coming, about seeing some of this kind of early Chetty's thought about mental health. Um, it's, it was things that, that I mean, because I had, I had studied this to some extent before, but I'd just never seen these responses before. And it, like, especially, so one of the things that I'm thinking about, I mean, you mentioned uh, anxiety, right? Um, and I, I wrote a paper on this, I think it's in the collection that I had out recently, in the Zhuangzi. And one of the things, and you'd never expect this, because I, I, I had studied a lot of uh, Buddhism and, uh, and Hellenistic philosophy, um, in which, so take Buddhism, right, where the where the the main aim is to rid ourselves of suffering and the mental states that cause suffering and things like this. And so there's one there's a passage in the in the Zhuangzi where the, he's talking about um, he's talking about anxiety um, and how anxi- you know this ne- this negative state of extreme anxiety. And then says there's a there's a passage about Cook Ding, this marvelous uh, butcher who's able to carve oxen you know with uh, without ever resharpening his knife. And when he explains to this uh, to the to this this ruler who asks him how he does this, at one point he says something like, um, "I I wait anxiously, right, and then I slide my blade through the rest, and everything falls apart like it's done, doing it it's on its own, right." And one of the things that that really surprised me about this was that the anxiety. And I went back and I looked at the Chinese, like, is, is he really talking about anxiety? And it's anxiety, like right? the, the anxiety there is like a necessary feature, right? So that for what the Zhuangzi is, is trying to do, uh, so the Zhuangzi's view is that. And this is part of their re- reaction against the Confucians. The idea being that, well, sometimes, so so they there's there's the person that they call the uh, Kuangren, which is the uh, uh, translated as the mad the mad person, the madman. Right? Um, Kuang later becomes a uh, um, a more specific term for uh, mania. Um, but the but but the Zhuangzi says, well, that can be some of these states that we think are 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 negative or that should be eliminated actually have their place, right? It's n- so the Zhuangzi's view is that nothing is truly kind of useless or should be thrown away. Rather, we should know when we should when we can use it and when we can't. And so here's this case in which you have something like anxiety that we usually want to rid ourselves of, which can be valuable in this situation, right? But what the Zhuangzi says is that we have to figure out which are the situations in which this is a proper response and where is it an improper response, right? And that that's the kind of the, the, the trick. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it makes me think that maybe one of these kind of major cultural differences, sort of East-West divides, is the emphasis on sort of harmony versus like balance, harmony, proportion versus a more binary kind of right, wrong or good, mm. bad, mm. false. Um, because it's something I see a lot in my clinical work is that people have very, very kind of judgmental um sort of moralistic 
uh, takes on themselves. Like when, like whenever they're suffering, it's, it's one of the most common sort of patterns and themes I see with, with my clients is that they're just in, extremely judgmental with themselves. Like mm. I'm feeling this, you know, what's wrong with me that I'm feeling this? Like, what did I do wrong because I'm feeling, or, or it's so bad that I'm feeling depressed or anxious. And that's, what's so intriguing to me about, um, some, uh, this other kind of, uh, tradition, which is it's, it, it's much more validating to use kind of a clinical term, which is that, you know, the, the sort of manic energy itself, the, the anxious energy itself, the, the more kind of low energy depressed state, it's not that they're bad necessarily, but if they, if they go too far, if they go out of proportion or harmony, they, they can lead to, to detrimental effects. But, but the overall, the overall goal maybe is it's not a, you know, this type of thought is bad and we need to get rid of it. Or these, these emotions are unhealthy. So we need a drug to kind of get rid of them. But it's more about how do we, how do we harmonize them in a way that's conducive to um, thriving, really? Absolutely. And this is, I mean, one of the things that, you know, if I, if I had to pick, uh, you know, a few terms to kind of sum up early Chinese philosophy, harmony or huh would definitely be one of them. I think that's, that's, that's right on, right? It's, it's the idea of balance and balancing and harmonizing these, these states that we have rather than uh, kind of gaining some and eliminating others, right? And especially you see this in, in things like, uh, like Taoism, right? This idea that what we tend to do is, as you said, right, we tend to have this kind of like, these are the things I should have, and these are the things I should get rid of, right? Whereas in the Zhuangzi, you, you hold, have this notion that well look all these things right all of these mental states that we have all of anything that that happens to humans can be seen as in some sense natural it seems in some sense properly belonging to us we just have to figure out how to harmonize those right how to do that how to have those in, in the right proportion in the right place um, in the right situation such that it leads ultimately to a thriving life yeah and that's where the you know i, I feel like i should have um a better training for me as a, as a therapist would have been um some more experience in in sociology and economics even politics because it it sounds like if we're gonna if we're gonna have if we're gonna help people have more harmonious sort of internal states and experiences a big part of that is how do we create harmony externally right mm -hmm. like in our in our society and in, in our broader kind of structures that we that we live within um, so what so how do, how would that look actually like in, in kind of using your your background in kind of ancient um, or even more contemporary kind of Chinese philosophy do they talk specifically about um, this is simplistic but if you you know if you want this effect kind of personally these types of changes should be made externally like what's the is it prescriptive or is it is it more this kind of general you know that the environment needs to be more harmonious if if the individual members are going to be feel more harmonious internally no, there's, there's definitely, I mean, in the Huangdi Neijing, a lot of it is prescriptive. So it, it, it goes further than even in, even in the medical text, right? Which is, goes back to this kind of claim I was talking about before about the link between philosophi and astronomy and, and medicine. In the Huangdi Neijing and many of the other medical texts, you'll hear things all the time like the way to, uh, the way to uh, treat something like Kuang or madness or mania or Dian, which is it's, which is, we might think of something like depression is to take all these kind of like to, to, to go to these places to avoid these kind of activities, right? Um, all, all of this kind of thing, right? Be in these particular kinds of groups, right? There's a, there's a ton of that. So most of the, most of the Huangdi Neijing, which is the earliest uh, medical text is, is about particular kinds of treatment. So the first chapter and some of the other ones are more theoretical talking about like how disorder happens, right? And how the mind and the body get disordered. But then most of the rest of it is, okay, what do we do with now? When we, when we discover cases of um, particular cases of Kuang, of, of, of mania or madness, um, what, how do we treat them? Right. Um, and 
And so you'll find a ton of that in these texts. And also, if you look at the um, astronomical texts, you find interestingly the same kind of thing. Right? So, because I, I first thought, and this is this is why I resisted this claim from Joe Guadian at first. I thought, well, the, the astronomical texts have to be about something different, right? It's got to be about just studying the planets. But it turns out that the most of the early Chinese thinkers thought of the um, the structure of the heavens as be, as mirroring the structure of the human realm. And so the idea would be that if we can somehow understand the patterns of the heavens, this will allow us to understand the patterns of the human realm such that we can order it properly and thus and thus thrive. Right? So pretty much everything that's going on is ultimately in the service of constructing this proper harmonious society. Right? And that so there's a there's a great term, one of my or a phrase, one of my favorite phrases from uh, Chinese philosophy. It's Tian Ren He Yi, which means that um, heaven and humanity form one unity. So with the idea being that the patterns that you see in some places are the same, the patterns that you see in the Tian, in the, in the heavens, right, are the same as the patterns that are operative in, in humans. And what we have to do is we have to figure out those patterns and then we can, we, we can use them elsewhere. We can use them for medicine, right? We can use them for morality. We can use them for, for, for anything, right? So much of early Chinese philosophy is, is trying to discern what those, what those patterns are. Interesting. It's sort of, uh, unifies those those two questions from my English professor of, you know, how should a life be lived and what's the nature of reality? It mm -hmm. sort of suggests they're at, at core, they're kind of the same question, right? If, if you can Absolutely. really understand one, you can sort of understand the other. Let's, um, I want to kind of transition to sort of later on in your in your essay, you have, you're talking about um, increasing rates of mental health issues in young people um, in the U.S. specifically. And you say, there's evidence that mental illness is increasing in younger members of society, along with increases in suicide and attempted suicide. Such increases in mental illness might say less about individual traits than they do about certain alienating and corrosive features of our society. Um, can you expand on that a little bit? Like, what do you, um, what do you see as some of those potential kind of mechanisms there? Yeah, so I so this is this is my guesswork a lot of it, right? So so I mean, there's, sure. there's certainly there's certainly facts about kind of the increase of this, right, and mental illness and the, and on the rise and all of this. I suspect, right? Go, get, start, so give it following the Confucians, right? I suspect that what may be going on is the focus on the individual is leading us into this kind of into a kind of crisis, right? And so that what you find when you have the kind of movement toward more individual society or more focus on the individual and individual choice, it actually leaves us in more of a kind of crisis mode, right? Putting more things on us than we actually really can, can, can do, can manage, right? Um, and, and it seems like part, part of what's, what's happening in the modern world is this kind of continual movement toward more and more individual choice, individual freedom, et cetera, et cetera, right? But it, it seems to me that that's not necessarily, especially if we take the confusion seriously, that's not necessarily a good thing, right? Because it can lead to this kind of like, panic and anxiety, right? And I think, and, and my guess is that that's a lot of what we're seeing going on with younger people, right? Not only this kind of, this this need to choose every single aspect of one's life and the pressure that that put, puts on one, but then how to do that while when you're relatively disconnected from community, right? Because part of what is leading to the ability to have particular kinds of identity or be in particular kinds of uh, um, place or have, you know, have the characteristics we do is the communities that we're involved in. And so if we're alienating ourselves more and more from a community, but then also have more and more pressure to have particular um, discrete identities, those two things seem to conflict with one another in ways that seem to, that seem to me that they would clearly create this kind of massive stress. Yeah, you know it's it's so fascinating that we're we're so, and, and I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't think either of us is, are suggesting that kind of 
individual liberty and freedom are, are, are bad things. But it's, it's interesting that we're so, we so, it seems so terrified of the, of the opposite that we, we swing to this, this extreme. Where, <laughs> yeah. That, that can be kind of paralyzed. There, there's this, one of my favorite um, kind of books of pop psychology, pop in the sense that it's written for a lay audience, but it's written by a guy named um, Barry Schwartz. Um, it's called the paradox of choice. And he documents this huge literature in psychology that shows that, the, the, he describes the the scene of he walks in he walks into a gap um, to buy some jeans and there's like fifty different like variants of jeans and he's just like paralyzed in, in sort of indecision like how could I possibly make a choice here and he actually just leaves totally discouraged with no new no new jeans because the the endless amount of choice is just we're somehow we're just not kind of not wired for that we need some kind of constraint to get to an optimal decision. Um, and it, may, it also makes me think of, you hear a lot about this in, um, from more creative types who talk about the, the sort of paradox of, or seeming paradox of creativity often requires constraints. You often mm-hmm. get the most interesting creative outputs from um, what could even seem like kind of rigid constraints. So I, it, it seems like there's a, a similar dynamic kind of going on here when, when we think about mental health and sort of optimal levels of, of flourishing. And you and I, I think you and I can relate to this as, as parents, right? You, you got to think about this a lot as a kid with, with, with your kids, which is kids, obviously, especially as they get older, they need more autonomy and Mm. and freedom. Um, But kids also need structure. And it's it's one of the big tasks of a parent, right? Is to figure out how do we balance those, right? I mean, it's kind of terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, and especially when you're when you're in the position of making these decisions, where where you're presented with all this choice, and then we've also got this view of agency in which we think that we are the lone kind of autonomous agent. It's all on us, right? And so this choice, not only do we have these really important choices to make, but it's all our fault. Like you said, like we get it wrong, right? And so we're like, oh my god, <laughs> if I eat, whether I choose or I don't choose or I completely break down, like it's it's a it's it's wrong, right? And so it, I think that can that can be overwhelming. Right? Oh, completely. <laughs> so. And, well, and it, it brings me to kind of my, my last big question that I that I want to touch on it and kind of segment from your your essay. And you, you talk about sort of towards the end, we should also be careful and seriously consider which aspects of our shared cultures might be contributing to the rise of mental illness. Mm. Now, this is a a fascinating question, but also kind of touchy. You can imagine this, um, <laughs> being rather sensitive, right? Because what it implies is um, culture is not a sort of universally good or bad thing, right? right? And that we need to be proactive and kind of dynamic about assessing the cultures and values um, that we come from and deciding what's optimal. So how do you, how do, how do we even go about thinking about doing this, like kind of assessing our sort of culture and how it's uh, having an effect on, I mean, you, you mentioned the, the idea of kind of extreme individuality or autonomy, but what are some other examples of, of kind of looking at how we could, how we could maybe question our sort of culture in a way that might be beneficial for mental health. Yeah, I think this is, I mean, I think one of the things that that would be helpful is to see the need to think about those aspects, right? Cultural aspects as maybe doing some of this work, right? Or leading to things like mental illness rather than looking at only kind of individual features. And I think, I mean, some that come off the top of my head is potentially 
um, problematic in terms of, uh, of of mental illnesses. The, the kinds of things that we that we value, for example, right, um, individual wealth, fame, all those kind of things, right, L- aiming for this being something like a necessity, right, that one has to achieve, right, given all the inherent problems with that, given that only certain tiny amounts of people are going to be able to achieve that, and also given the fact that, given that um, it doesn't seem to actually do what what people want it to do in terms of like mental well-being, right? So that's you know, so our our kind of um, our our kind of worship of 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 you know pursuing wealth or fame or any of these other kinds of values we have may turn out to be. I mean, I'm not certain that they, but I, I mean, I suspect they are. But that may turn out to be a cultural element that actually helps to uh, to 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 lead to things like mental illness. And so I think part of what 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 we should be doing is to recognize the role that these cultural elements play, and then try to figure out which might be those th- which which features of the culture might be the ones that ha- that are that are doing this. I suspect um, because I'm kind of with the Confucians on this that that because of a lot of the focus a lot of the focus on the things that we value. Um, on wealth and kind of economic features, that it has this tendency to um, to play this alienating role, right? To alienate us from from others, to alienate us from family, things like this. I know, for example, even myself, right? So I don't live, you know, where my family, where I grew up, right? I grew up in Washington D.C. Um, I'm now in Connecticut, right? I move around. Everybody's mobile, right? I don't have contact with the people that I talked to years ago, right? And that, which was different than in my parents or my grandparents' generations, things like this. And a lot of that is because of our kind of, in some sense, a shift of what we value, right? Um, being around family versus, you know, pursuing pursuing a, a certain kind of career or something like this. And maybe those are kind of the kind of cultural elements that we need to uh, think about. I mean, so there are certain there are certain cultures. I know in China, for example, um, or not so much these days, right? It's changing a bit. But um, the idea that you would somehow go, that you would abandon family, right? Or that you would go somewhere else would be unheard of, right? Um, so, it, and that may be, uh, that may contribute to to uh, mental well-being. I know, for example, for myself, you know, when I go, when I would go back to, you know, like holidays, right, and visit family, like you, you could, I could actively feel the stress, just like, just, just, just leaving my body. <laughs> <laughs> like right. it was all it was so so I know I mean that's got to be I, mean, I can't be the only one with that with that kind of response and so things like that I mean the the the, the fact that we're so mobile and that we kind of we're, tra- we're transitory and things like this may be c- features of our culture that actually contribute to to some of the isolation and alienation and stress that that we feel. Yeah, the other you know the other thing that popped in my mind reading this um, that that you're what you talk about sort of implies is that you know, one way we can do this is we can sort of turn down the dial on um, kind of cultural components that have a negative impact on on mental health. But it also sort of implies that we could do the same sort of analysis, cultural analysis, and maybe figure out ways to turn up the volume on cultural elements that are especially beneficial to mental health and well-being. Um, any, any thoughts on that? Like what, where, where would we kind of look there um, and do the, I don't know, maybe, maybe Confucius has, has some thoughts on that. That's a, re- that's a, that's a really good question. And I think, I mean, I've, I've worked more on the negative bits, like what's bad about this? Like that's, that's leading to, because of, because of my uh, focus on, on mental illness in particular. But I think insofar as, I think what the Confucians might say about that is that insofar as we have something like, um, which I think the Confucians had much more. We do, but a kind of um, social solidarity, right? A sense of t- a sense of commitment to one another. In fact, the Confucians thought of this as like one of the central virtues. They talked about this virtue of, of ren, which translates as something like humanity and means like human heartedness, right? Or a, a kind of commitment to society in general. 
And they they thought that if you could that if you had this, then in a sense everything else would work itself out, right? Because all the other virtues really fall out of that, right? Um, if we're committed to uh, develop, if we're committed to others, we're committed to developing society. Then we're going to also do the kinds of things that lead to uh, their well-being, right? Which is going to just kind of uh, it's going to uh, all the vir- virtues are ultimately going to flourish. If there are certain things within our own society, and I think maybe we have the seeds of that, right? Um, that we could kind of turn up. Um, I think that would that would that would do a lot as far as um, helping with not only with mental illness, but with our sense of purpose in general, right? Um, I think part of the reason that there's this kind of crisis of, of purposelessness is just because of this kind of uh, increasing alienation from things like uh, community, right? Why the fact that like, I don't know any of my neighbors, right? And I don't have these kind of communities that I remember even as a kid's, my kid, my, my, my family having, right? And certainly going back further than that. And so I think these things, I mean, that's one thing I think we could kind of, we could kind of amp up in, in, our, in our society. Um, I think there's also th- this issue of uh, innovation. Like they, we talk about technical innovation and other kinds of innovation and learning all the time. I think that would be something that actually could be beneficial as well and also could be a communal project, right? So if we look at something like the university, for example, right, which is one of the reasons I'm a big proponent of like interdisciplinarity and things like this in the university, because like creating these communities, the purpose of which is like um, is discovery and learning and innovation, right? That, that it serves the role of being, you know, creating communities that are thriving communities and helping our, our well-being in that sense. And also giving us this kind of like purpose in terms of like learning new things and developing new things. Right? So I think there's a, there's, there's some, there's seeds of these things that are there. What I, one of the things I worry about is that one of the places I think that really happens or could happen well is the university, for example. And that's something that that's currently seems to be under attack in our society. Yeah, it's, uh, well, it's, it's, I don't know. I, I find all of this, um, at the same time, kind of simultaneously exciting and daunting. Um, maybe that's a good sign. Maybe that means we're focusing on the right things. You know, right. It's both challenging and uh, and exciting. Right, absolutely. Um, well, Alexis, I, I want to be uh, careful about your time, and I'm, I'm going to let you go here. But um, thank you so much. You know, this has just been really, um, it's been a lot of fun. It's been fascinating, kind of eye-opening. And I, I really hope, I hope a lot of other um, sort of therapists and mental health professionals in my audience um, listen to this and, and kind of, hear kind of your take on this and all the kind of insights that you've helped surface from a very different uh, tradition that, that hopefully can be helpful in our, in sort of the evolution of our field of mental health, because I think it's much needed. Um, is there a, for people who want to learn more about you and your work, is there a particular place that would be good for people to go and um, yeah, learn more? So I have um, most of my, most of my early work is in, uh, earlier work is in Chinese and Mesoamerican philosophy. Uh, you can find a lot of my books and Amazon, places like this. Um, my academia.edu page has a lot of my works on it, um, if you're interested in some of this stuff. And as I mentioned to you, I have a book um, that's coming out, um, should be coming out toward the end of the year with Oxford University Press called The Tao of Madness, Mental Illness and Self-Cultivation in Early Chinese Philosophy and Medicine. So that that's a place where they talk about all this stuff. So if you're interested, definitely check that out. All right, Alexis, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Minds and Mics. If you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you took one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps out a lot. And if you've already done that, please consider sharing Minds and Mics with a friend or family member you think would enjoy it. As always, thank you for continuing to support the show, and we'll see you next time.